This episode, we speak to Lindsay Howard, who is the community manager at The Foundation, one of the primary NFT platforms that's been in the headlines recently. This is the next episode in our series looking at NFTs and what it means for artists, creators, and the art community in general. Lindsay Howard is no stranger to Hyperallergic. She worked with us when we put on our first Tumblr symposium, well, our only Tumblr art symposium, years and years ago at 319 Schultz. But since then, she's gone on to work at other projects. But she'll tell you a little bit about that herself. So let's get started. Foundation is an NFT marketplace, and we work with artists and musicians and writers to help them turn their digital pieces into unique NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens that are unique on the blockchain. As a marketplace, we also help connect those creators with collectors so they can find support for their, for their creative practice and their creative work. Okay, so now I've known you for a while because you've been involved in this sort of space, which I, I guess we call digital art space for quite a while. Now, why don't you explain a little bit of your background so we can kind of get a sense of where you're coming from. And so people who may not know you, because you have been part of the art world for quite a while, why don't you tell us a little bit about your own trajectory? Sure, I've always been an internet nerd since day one. I was in those AOL chat rooms a long time ago. And then I really enjoyed Tumblr when it came out, and I spent a ton of time there. And at some point, a gallerist reached out to me in 2010 and said, hey, I love the aesthetic of your Tumblr. Do you want to curate an exhibition in my space? And I said, what's a curator? What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, from that first exhibition until now, 11 years later, that's all that I've done. So you really, it was through your Tumblr. I didn't know that that was the sort of, I love that, that someone took that chance on you doing that. Yeah, so I've, I've always been really enamored with the social aspects and aesthetics of online communities and interested in how to use these traditional white cube kind of spaces to reflect some of the work that's online um, and give it some legitimacy or at least play with the idea of it giving legitimacy and bringing that back to the internet. So Since that first exhibition, I've worked at Phillips Auction House. I've been a fellow a couple of times at iBeam. I worked at Kickstarter. And I also organized two digital art auctions at Phillips to help bringing animated GIFs, art websites, online performances, generative works, all of that kind of material into the auction house to create public pricing records for those pieces. I remember that. It It made a big splash at that time because it was sort of, you know, uh, trying to bring digital to sort of like a way that artists can make money and all these types of things. And it does seem like that seems to be a particular interest for you, which is like finding ways for digital artists to monetize their work. Is that a correct assessment? Totally, yeah. Uh, When I was at 319 Shoals at the beginning, I saw so many amazing artists get scooped up by these big brands like Coca-Cola or Nike because they wanted to hire them to do their creative coding or their marketing or their website design. And I saw so many of them lose their identity in that process. And it was really heartbreaking for me to know that no one would ever know that artist's name. They would only ever know that Coca-Cola did a great ad during the Super Bowl. And that that was so heartbreaking to me at the time that I just made it my mission to build a market so that these digital artists and creators online would be respected for their work, they would be monetized for their work, and they would be able to support themselves and their families. Right. That's always been very important to me and, and very consistent throughout my career. So now the thing about that is, you know, that I remember that sort of moment where it was like, you know, they were all, all the brands were kind of swooping in. And honestly, most of those artists never lasted Like, meaning, like, maybe they're still making brand stuff, but, like, I mean, they aren't in the art space or whatever, or at least a lot of them seem to kind of lose interest and sort of move on. Do you think that's an accurate assessment? I think there are some artists who can kind of mess with brands in an interesting way, Um, and maybe they have developed some more autonomy over time. But I think that playing both their personal creative practice and building that alongside any like brand or commissioned opportunities has helped them in that way. 
And what we're starting to see now with crypto art is a lot of these artists are saying, I no longer have to take commissioned projects from brands. Or if I do, I have the ability to decide how I want to engage with them. And I feel like I have more negotiating power in those, in those conversations because I am making such a sustainable living here by selling my work as unique NFTs. Wait a minute. They're actually making a sustainable living? Yes. You just blew my mind. <laughs> I mean, this isn't an old marketplace. So Foundation is three weeks old at this point. Right. We started last May initially tokenizing physical art and mm -hmm. goods, mm -hmm. which it turns out is not an amazing business model in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> um, both for the artists, they were like, what the hell? We don't want to be like at USPS or with FedEx like all day long. Like this is painful. Uh, so, you know, in conversations with the artists and the collectors, we decided to focus more on digital pieces. And so that's where we are today. But foundation isn't the only way that artists right. can create NFTs. And artists have been in this space for a couple of years now. Some of the early folks who were doing this, certainly like the way that they were earning Ether two or three years ago, now with the price has increased so greatly, they're crypto wealthy, I think you could safely say. So what, do you want to explain Ether? Sure. So Bitcoin is the... Uh, most popular and highly traded cryptocurrency, and Ether is the second. Last I checked, Bitcoin is worth around $48,000 right now for one Bitcoin. Ether is around $1,700, but a few months ago it was $90. Right. So it's, it's increased um, dramatically over time. So people who kind of got in on the ground floor have been able to cash in, essentially. So now... How many, um, like, what are we talking about? Because still a few years for a marketplace, and I'm not talking about just foundation, but I'm talking about NFTs in general. Mm -hmm. That's not a very long time, right? Now, first of all, who are some of the clients for this? I mean, what are you finding in your own experience? Yeah, the collector base is really interesting. I was very curious about that at the top of this as well. I was like, is this real? This seems a little too good to be true. So... I made it my mission to go out and talk with a lot of these collectors and see, understand more about their psychology and where they're coming from. I can give you a few different profiles of who these who these people are, Please, yeah. <laughs> which I think is pretty interesting. So right off the bat, of, of course, you have some speculators who are pretty distant from the art, but they see that there is a potential investment here. Well, so, I mean, if you're going from $90 to $1,500 for Ether, I mean, I, I guess they're smelling the money. <laughs> so, there, so there's that. Let's be upfront about that. Yeah, that, there, yeah. there, that does exist. There are also collectors who have more of an activist approach, who are looking at the art market and thinking the ship has sailed there. I'm no longer going to be able to have a significant impact on the sales for Black artists, gay artists, women artists. Here is a more nascent movement that's developing where I actually have an opportunity to come in huh. as someone who's maybe crypto wealthy or coming over even from the art world or the world of finance, where I can actually help create the cultural paradigm that matters to me, that there's space for that right now because this is so new and nascent. So that's, that's such an interesting uh, one, though. I have to say crypto wealthy sounds so shady, but, <laughs> but <laughs> hey, but it's the lingo. I get it. But it exists. It exists. And, so there and, are people who are doing this. Absolutely. Okay. And then the kind of third category that I would point to are people who are just very curious about how it all works. Right. They have probably been following some of these artists for a long time. They aren't able to afford a, a Sarah Ludi piece from Bitform's gallery, right. but they do appreciate her work and they appreciate her posts. They appreciate what she stands for. And so they want to be a patron. Right. And I think that's kind of probably the biggest category, actually, huh. is like a genuine appreciation and a desire to be a patron, finally, in a way that they can afford to do so. Previously, people who had crypto for the last... Uh, six, seven, eight years, they were only ever able to buy more crypto with their crypto. <laughs> and now there's an opportunity where you can actually, without having to cash out into USD and pay a lot of taxes, you can actually be a patron of an artist by using your Ether to be able to purchase their work. And, and that's really exciting for a lot of people that 
You, Absolutely. Yeah, you can you can now buy a song or a beautiful artwork. You can even have a high-res version of it or a full-length video that you project in your home or or hang in your home on an infinite objects or other kind of device. Yep. Um, and live with this work that brings so much beauty and so much joy into our lives on a daily basis. That's really cool. So now you're talking about these three categories of people. What would you give percentages wise? Like how, what's the breakdown? <laughs> Are we talking 50% speculators, 25% like activists, 20? I mean, like, what do you think? And I mean, I think people will understand this is just a rough guess. This is, I don't know if you have like the full stats, maybe you do, but what do you think? I would say that about 75% of the people are patrons. Got it. There's a lot of love and a lot of desire to connect with the artist as an individual. People who want to just kind of speculate on this are more likely to veer toward maybe a safer investment, right. <laughs> slightly safer investment. Right. So I think the people who are in this space are actually here because they care about the art and they care about the artists. Got it. And it's actually pretty moving to see <laughs> to see those kinds of relationships forming, because there yeah there is just a lot of care and friendship. Hmm. So it's, okay, it's so... pretty cute, honestly, Hrog. It's pretty <laughs> cute. <laughs> okay, so the patron that was the that was what the second category. The, the you third, yeah, third the second category. was kind of more activist. Yeah. So what percentage are those? Are like ten percent, twenty percent of this marketplace now? You feel like? I'm gonna mess up these percentages because yeah, I, I started with seventy five, so now I took. I would say. I mean, it's kind of also who do, who am I listening to? Who yep. do I, who do I sure. personally care about? Yep. And you know, we have One Off and Flamingo. These are like DAOs that are forming that are basically like. Do you want to do you want to explain what that is? Yeah, a DAO is like essentially they're operating as like collectives of collectors who are pooling their resources together to invest in artists. So we have um, Flamingo DAO. And the Mint Fund, which is accepting donations to be able to pay for the gas fees of emerging artists who may not otherwise have access to the space. Mm -hmm. And they are prioritizing BIPOC and LGBTQIA plus artists in that process as well. So those are the initiatives that I'm really paying attention to and that I really right. care about. So for me, those are 100% of the people. Sure. Um, but I think that those efforts are really picking up steam as well and that's also in part to artists as they start to make strides in this space are very often coming back in and reinvesting their earnings into those initiatives and into other artists who they want to help elevate in the space. So how big are these funds? I mean, like you're saying getting to, I mean, we're talking multi-million dollar funds? Flamingo Dow is definitely a multi-million dollar fund. Okay. And they're made up of some crypto natives and then also some people from the art world. Right. So, okay, so now you touched on something I'd love to talk about. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, from what I understand, you're probably one of the only people, quote unquote, from the art world in this space. That's really interesting because it's being talked about like art, but it's really coming more from the tech world, it sounds like, right? So is this just a way for the tech world to like Columbus this? I mean, I don't know what, like, what is it they're doing because okay, you can make work, but you're kind of like shifting a whole marketplace without any knowledge of what art is in some ways. What's your take? Going straight <laughs> for the controversial questions here. Yeah, I think that there is, at least from Foundation's perspective, our founders are very involved in culture, but more as participants, not mm. as cultural creators. Interesting. And they were coming from the decentralized finance space, the DeFi, and they were very bored with it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they were like, we want to work on something where we're actually collaborating with artists, collaborating with musicians. This is what they were doing in their free time. They were running out of work to go to shows or go to exhibitions. And they were like, this is where our actual heart is and what we actually care about. 
And so that's how I got connected to them, actually through artist Addie Wagonect, who I oh, think has been yeah. on your podcast that's previously. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, she had been in contact with Foundation because she her background is as a cryptographer and also as an artist and had been chatting with them and and she said, you know, you really should have a curator here. Like you should have someone who's coming from the art world and has relationships with artists specifically in the digital art space. Um, and that's, that's how no, Addie. Yeah, no, Addie's always making it happen for people. Amazing. <laughs> She's yeah, great. Honestly. So yeah, that's, that's how I came in. Um, I do think that some of the rhetoric around some of the other NFT platforms is very much about disruption, that they're coming from more, uh, kind of tech backgrounds, which is a fair assessment, but our team at foundation really actually does care about artists. Uh, and we have a long time commitment to working with artists. I hired um, Samantha Asen from um, the Broad Museum. She was on the founding team there and she's been working with artists and residency programs locally and in, in LA for the last like five or six years. She's also a contributor at the Creative Independent where she does artist interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've also been collaborating with Charles Damga from um, Warp Records to help us cultivate relationships with musicians who are going to be entering the NFT space on foundation as well. So the cultural aspects of foundation are very sincere, very authentically wanting to help artists. And then the tech side of foundation over there, we have over a decade of experience building strong crypto projects. So our team is essentially trying to do what the company is trying to do, which right. is merging this conversation between crypto and culture. Love that. Oh, I love it. I mean, I don't know if you know, but we actually always play Warp on our, uh, we have a deal with them. It's like, it's awesome. I love hearing all these because it sounds like it's, these are serious people who are really committed to culture. So that sounds really great. So now, how do you deal with the fact that like any tech space is such a white bro space? Do you know, it's just everyone wants to talk about it. It's all changing and stuff. But we also know at the top of the pyramid, it's just so overwhelmingly white tech bro. Now, have there been any initiatives to, at least in, in from your perspective, because we've talked to, to Addy a little bit about that already. What Have there been any initiatives to sort of just ensure that that doesn't just reproduce the same inequality, the same distortion, the same skewing that we've already been seeing? Yeah, I didn't get into the crypto space for a while because I had very much that impression of it, that it was a kind of Winklevi twin utopia that I just didn't feel emotionally connected to or intellectually connected to. Um, And it was when this kind of cultural aspect started to open up toward the middle of last year that I started to see more potential for other people to be able to come in and access these resources, these financial resources, but also these tools that have potential to accrue more financial resources. And I was maybe somewhat naively shocked when we first announced Um, that foundation was going to be a company. We did an announcement on Twitter and all of a sudden we were just flooded with feedback from white male, primarily coders. And I actually sat down with my boss and I said, I felt really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. kind of being in that space and dialoguing because I didn't see anyone engaging in conversations about art or culture. And it was clear that there was a lot of work to do Mm -hmm. to open up this space, to make it accessible, to make it welcoming, to make it a place that anyone else would even want to be. And right now there are some initiatives that I think are really important. Like I mentioned, the Mint Fund is something that Samantha Asen on our team is really involved with. Mm -hmm. And they're pooling resources to pay gas fees for artists to get into the space and be able to start minting. So what does that mean, gas fees? So anytime there's a transaction on Ethereum, there is a fee that's associated with it. So in order to mint an NFT or list it in the auction auction place, you have to pay that transaction fee. It's like a hundred bucks or something, right? Right now it's pretty pricey, yeah. So it's about a hundred bucks. Um, And that doesn't go to the platforms that goes directly to the miners who are working on the network. So 
the price varies based on how congested the network is and how much work right. they have to do. Right. But that is a pretty significant upstart cost for someone who's just trying to get into the space for the first time, thinking about a hundred or two hundred dollars. You know, Instagram is free, or Facebook is free, Twitter is free. Well, you still have to buy a computer. You still have to. Buy, I mean, a smartphone can be a thousand dollars, right? You know? True. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's I not, know, it's I not do exactly. Know that, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I see what you're saying, but to sign up, yeah, you know, just totally. to just to get in, and yeah, so. The goal for Mint Fund is to really open that up and make it more accessible, pay some of those early start costs so, so are you hopeful? So people have a chance. Are you hopeful that that's going to change? Do you know that this sort of the the sort of like white bro culture of it, have you seen some progress? I hope that it changes. Yeah. Okay. That's this fair. is this is this is my opinion, Hrog. <laughs> I worked um, with the new museum on their initiative at Bell Labs, where mm -hmm. they were bringing artists and residents to collaborate with these Nobel Prize winning scientists. And this was a couple of years ago, and I will never forget Su Guan Chong in this room with one of these Nobel Prize winning scientists, prodding him with questions about the social implications of this technology that he was so certain of. And it was an epiphany that I had in that moment that artists always need to have a seat at the table when new technology is being created mm -hmm. before it's disseminated to everyone else because artists are the ones who are going to be able to see the social implications, the ethical implications and asking these important questions of the technologists. And I think that that's what's happening now in crypto as well, is that because there is this like new flood of artists and kind of cultural interest in this space, it's adding what I hope is a really valuable complexity. <laughs> Like yep. not value in terms of dollars, but I mean like meaningful complexity to this space where the technologists can be held accountable for what they're creating and the artists also have an opportunity to benefit in the same way that early adopters and technologists have in other contexts. Makes sense. So now what has been the biggest surprise for you in this space? <laughs> That's a great question. What has been the biggest surprise I thought that the, the, wow, I thought that the art world would ignore it because really? the, I, the art world is very good at ignoring digital art. It's true. That's a good point. The art world is very good at pretending that digital art doesn't exist, that internet art doesn't exist. Until, until the word a million enters the equation. That's God. why. <laughs> that's, what ha that's what happened. I think that's what happened. When you say a million, a number of people in the art world will notice. Christie's wakes up all of a sudden, right. like all the auction houses pause and they're like, oh, shit. We they're need returning to get... yeah. your calls. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe maybe it is naive, but I thought the art world would ignore it. And the art world is definitely not ignoring NFTs yeah. if Clubhouse is to be believed. And I think... No, they're... I don't think we should believe Clubhouse personally. <laughs> well, it's just uh, we have a lot of interest now from people who are very curious and also... I think concerned or have just a lot of questions about how this is going to work and where their place is in this. I mean, you're an art critic. Yep. One of the questions we've talked about in our discord among the artists is what is the role of the art critic? That's right. In the crypto art space. Some people are like, I really want art critics here. I want that kind of dialogue and feedback and be able to unpack the work beyond just the value. Other people are like, I don't want our critics. <laughs> I don't I don't want someone telling me what I'm doing wrong or doing right. So I think there this space is so nascent right now that there are a lot of questions of like what do we carry over from the traditional art world or the traditional music world and what works for us and what doesn't work for us. Yep. Fortunately, the people who are making those decisions tend to be the artists. And the, the artists have never been the ones who've been able to make those right. decisions before. So Well, for now. They're they're, they're very <laughs> empowered at and you know they're they're holding the cards and um, helping shape helping shape this space quite a bit. So yeah. that's very. Exciting. I love see this. I think part of the reason this is appealing because this is kind of really fun to talk about. Do you know? I mean, I think I'm just going to share my take, which is I think part of the reason it was taken seriously now is I think we've spent a year in pandemic, and I think a lot of the stodgy people who refused to go online for so long had no choice. Do you know? And honestly, the rest of us are like, yeah, welcome to the party, dude. 
Like, really, it's like, because they just, they didn't want to be part of it, right? And now you realize you're like, oh, actually, most of those events you're doing are just as good online. Half those exhibits you're doing, you could do online exhibits and you'll probably get the same discourse, do you know, and conversation and maybe even sales, you know, and people are like, wait a minute, why are we still printing invites? And why are we still doing all these things that are, you know, not digital? You know, and I think that's something that I've noticed, like museums all of a sudden were putting their collections online in a way that it's like, what took you so long and doing all these things. So I do think that that this forced that mm -hmm. where people were like, you know what, maybe I am being stodgy and old school and this is not. And people are like hungry. OK, well, what's next? And I will say, I think actually as art critics. I was hoping you were going to take oh, the bait oh, on I'm that. Oh, I'm taking yeah. it. I, you, you, you're, totally, you're, you're totally trolling me. I know that. Um, I think as art critics, you may be surprised. We may start minting our own things, you know, and like creating our own like things in this space. Because, you know, I think the line between art criticism and art sometimes has been blurring more. Mm -hmm. It's not quite the same, you know, as that, as what people like to think. And I think... A lot of art writing programs are dinosaurs, do you know, because they still write as if it's the 70s, do you know, or at least think about art writing as the 70s. And I think I think there are a lot of artists that could easily function as critics and vice versa. And I think that's going to be really interesting to see, too, because I think those old boundaries, which were defined by gallery markets, mostly, predominantly, are kind of changing. I'm really interested to see how it's going to evolve. I think it's going to be exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's podcasts. It's, you know, it's all these other yeah. things, you know. I don't think any one thing is going to replace everything, you know. Yeah. I think this idea, this old idea of, like, the new is going to supplant the old in mm -hmm. this, like, direct way is kind of a little old-fashioned, too, in a certain way, you know. It's sort of, it sort of splits. And it's all these, like, you know, we, they sort of, like, evolve into, like, kind of more organically, I think into different things. I so, totally, yeah, I was just going to say, I, I totally agree with that. So let's talk a little bit about statistics. What can you tell us about this marketplace? Like, what is it that people are doing? What are, you know, what are the sales? What are, how many artists are there on there? How many works are there? Yeah. So Foundation launched three weeks ago, which is pretty crazy. <laughs> it feels like Amazing. it's been a lot longer than that, but it just took off right away. So there have been about 1,500 NFTs that have been minted in the last three weeks and over $1.5 million in sales. In three weeks? Going to artists. Woo. Yep. And about $7.5 million going through the system in total. Um, and so that includes like bids that, you know, we're not the highest bid, but just money that was going through. And I think that that is an interesting signal because it shows... The level of trust that collectors have in foundation as a marketplace and at this point 27 artists have earned more than ten thousand dollars on foundation wow. um, 150 artists have earned more than fifteen hundred dollars in the last three weeks nice. and 215 artists have earned more than eight hundred dollars so there are uh you know a lot of artists who are coming into this space sometimes just like testing to see how it's going to go. Mm -hmm. And they're experiencing huge blowout success right away. There are other ones who are coming in and experimenting and doing some weird shit, which is amazing. <laughs> and like pushing the medium, they're less focused on sales, but they're just trying to explore what this space is and understand it. And then we also had a big breakout sale with Nyan Cat. With the creator, Chris Torres, who uploaded Nyan Cat 10 years ago onto YouTube, where it now has over 185 million views on YouTube. Love Nyan Cat. I fucking love Nyan Cat. Oh, yeah. I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's just, he's so, he brings so much joy, right? This is what I'm talking about. The, it's just a really good image, too. It's, it's a fantastic image. Yeah. You know? It's just like, I mean, talk just aesthetically. Mm -hmm. It's actually just a really good image, period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, the GIF is great. All the parts of it are great. Anyway, go on. I agree with you. It's fantastic. And... Um, this year is the 10-year anniversary of Nyan Cat, and so Chris and I touched base, and he decided he wanted to create an NFT for, for that piece, and we put it up, and it sold for, at the time, what was the equivalent of $600,000 for, for Nyan Cat. I think there were some variables that contributed to that success. For one, Nyan Cat is kind of the unofficial mascot of Ethereum. 
So I think a lot of people who are in the crypto That's space true. were like, right. amazing. And then also that was the first example of a famous meme being minted as an NFT. So there was a lot of interest in like, let's right. set let, let's set a standard here so that other meme creators can come in. And so I think like all these things kind of coming together created a perfect storm, you know, with the 10 year anniversary. And I was on a Twitch live stream with Chris as we were watching the last hour of the auction play out. And I was really having to fight back tears because it was just so emotional, like seeing these numbers come in. And, you know, we read the headlines in the New York Times or, you know, wherever it might be. And, the, the, you know, the journalists, how they cover it, it's like, that's what we care about. Or the auction houses, how they put it out. But it's really when you're on a live stream with the creator and he's saying, this is literally going to change my life. This is going to change my life in very practical ways. Yeah. That's what it's actually about. Right. So we'll talk about the numbers. They'll be flashy. They'll get around. There'll be something about Mark Cuban somewhere or Elon right. Musk somewhere. But who actually cares? Like yeah, that's I don't care. That's all BS, right? Just right. leave that to the side. What it really let matters. Let them go to Mars. <laughs> let them go to Mars. <laughs> what really matters here are the artists and the impact that this is having on their lives to be able to support them and also, most importantly, allow them to be able to create more beautiful work. Okay, so let's talk about the, we're looking at the foundation.app website right now, and there's a work by Maxwell Stepp, it's called The Three Truths, that's being bid on right now. Yeah, so the way that it works on Foundation is that when an artist uploads an NFT, mm -hmm. they set a reserve price, and that's the lowest price that they would be willing to accept for the piece. When a bid comes in at the reserve price, that triggers a 24-hour auction. Right. And then at the end of those 24 hours, if someone jumps in, in the last 15 minutes, it extends the auction 15 minutes more. So that auction mechanism has been very productive. Right. Uh, I can say, like, right. as a collector, it's very addictive. I have to, like, cancel meetings that I have toward the end of auctions that I'm bidding on because I need to <laughs> watch and see what's going on. Um, so there is lots of, like, dopamine <laughs> going on in that, in that kind of design. We initially launched with an open bidding system where an artist could just put up a piece and get a bid and accept a bid whenever they wanted. But both artists and collectors said, hey, you need to move this along a little bit faster because right, right, funds are in escrow. Right. Let's keep it moving. Um, so, so we were like, all right, let's break it down to 24 hours. And it's really efficient for both parties and really works. And it's, uh, we found that, yeah, it just, it makes for a very exciting experience. So, but here I'm just looking at the bid right now for this image. I mean, which looks like probably, a, I'm guessing it's a digital painting or a drawing mm -hmm. that's sort of been minted. It's $5,200. Mm -hmm. So now why don't you explain to people what they're actually buying? Yeah, for sure. So what they're actually buying is a token that represents that artwork on the blockchain. So you're not actually buying the work itself. As a collector, you don't get any rights to the piece. All of that remains with the artist. So essentially, an artist could upload an MP3 on mm -hmm. Foundation and sell that token to someone who wanted to purchase it. And then they could walk over and upload it to Spotify and Bandcamp and also sell it there if they wanted to. Because it's not actually about the MP3. It's not right. actually about the PNG or the, or the JPEG. It's about the token that represents it on the blockchain. And for people who believe that the blockchain is this very important ledger that's going to document all transactions in the future, that is very valuable. Hmm. So now... I guess part of like people are going to ask like do you get a copy of the image? Do you actually receive a copy of the image? Yeah, so on foundation we have a 50 megabyte limit okay. which is something which is something that we've talked about a lot and I can go into that a little bit more but yes, as a collector the piece is transferred over to your profile once mm -hmm. you win the auction and then the artist can also add supplementary material on foundation that you can actually download the full image or or full-length video, whatever it might be. So you can then project it in your home or you can put it on an infinite objects or any other kind of display that you mm -hmm. have. But what I'm actually seeing more of, Hrog, is um, collectors taking these artworks and carrying them over into their 3D virtual gallery spaces. Huh. And so that's why we set the limit at 50 megabytes 
for the NFT because we wanted our we wanted collectors to be able to easily move them into crypto voxels or Somnium space or Decentraland, any of these kind of 3D worlds where they're installing their own galleries. Gotcha. Um, and that that's created a whole new kind of ecosystem and a whole other kind of that's a that's a different podcast episode. Totally. Um, but it's very interesting to see how all of this plays together. I have a question. Is it possible to destroy an NFT work? So there is something called burning an NFT. It doesn't actually fully destroy the piece, but it removes it from circulation. So that can happen. Yes. On all of the foundation artwork pages, there's a proof of authenticity section mm -hmm. here. If you scroll down a little bit, it shows you the links to that artwork on Etherscan, IPFS, and OpenSea. Mm -hmm. So Etherscan shows all of the transactions on the blockchain. Yep. So you can click through and see that it's verified as an NFT. Yep. IPFS is where the artwork is hosted on a peer-to-peer -peer storage network. And then OpenSea is a database of all NFTs on the internet. Right. So mm -hmm. it's a much more open sort of uh, thing. So, but now what would it look like to actually destroy an artwork in, in this space? Like, how would you do that out of curiosity? You can't fully destroy it because it's permanent. You can, you can burn the NFT, but it doesn't actually remove it fully. So in some ways, this sort of, unless the whole blockchain collapsed, like, so this kind of takes away the issue of destruction of artworks in some ways. I like that provocation, though, Frog, if there's an artist that's listening to this right now who's like... <laughs> that's kind I'm... of why I'm asking you, actually. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to figure out how to... Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's potentially um, a creative inspiration for an artist who wants to do that. But I think that this, this is more about kind of celebrating that permanency um, and, and the transparency of that as well. Got it. So now, where do you think is the most unlikely use for these works you've seen? How do you mean? I don't know. I mean, are people putting them on their phone and using them as backdrops? I mean, are people literally creating whole walls in their, in their apartments? I mean, what have you seen people... Because, I mean, these are not exactly... There isn't a necessarily a convention yet, right? You know, people are experimenting how to see it. You were saying about 3D galleries. You were saying all these things. Have you seen any sort of unlikely uses for this? And maybe the answer is no, and that's fine, but I'm just asking. Well, everything that you just said is, it seems very likely because I think that all of those are possible. But the most interesting one right now that I feel like is getting the most traction are these 3D virtual spaces and how we can actually not even just move over the white cube experience into these online galleries, but rethink how we interact with art as an experience because we can totally reimagine it now. I think some of these early online galleries were kind of carrying over the white cube. They had lighting projected mm -hmm. from above and it's like, right. why? You don't need right. the scale anymore. The artwork right. of course is like one tenth of the wall. So we can start to really rethink what it means to have a gallery type experience if we even want to use that word anymore. And so I think like how works are displayed is definitely an area that is going to see a lot more experimentation and and growth as, as these markets start to develop even further. Totally. Now, how about the energy consumption, which has been a big concern for people, mm -hmm. right, for works like this? Because, of course, all these processes require a lot of energy, you know, and a lot of um, resources. So people are a little concerned about the environmental uh, impact of something like this. Have there been any actions or any sort of uh, projects undertaken to help remedy some of that? Yeah, this is another point where I think artists are very helpful to have in these conversations. Just to give a little bit of context, Foundation actually launched last October as an NFT marketplace on the XDAI chain, which is proof of stake. And when we did that, we wrote a blog post about how on L2 is what it's called, layer two, um, this XDAI chain, the, there's basically zero gas fees. Pen, it was the equivalent of pennies, basically. And it was extremely more energy efficient. And we thought we were being really ahead of ahead of the group, like ahead of the game yep. by introducing this. And we're pretty proud of ourselves, honestly, with this blog post. And then the feedback that we got was unanimous from artists and collectors. They said that we were basically an island. 
Hmm. and that our NFTs weren't compatible with OpenSea. They weren't compatible right. with and couldn't be verified in the same way that NFTs that were on L1, on Ethereum, sold with Ether, were. So we had spent a month and a half migrating over to a proof of stake, and then we decided to spend a month and a half coming back to Ethereum on a proof of work model because we thought we're not gonna do anything for any artists. If we're out here and no one wants to be here, we can't get collectors here, it just doesn't make sense. And then the whole conversation about the ecological impact just boomed um, in, in January, early February when we came back. So I think that this adds a little bit of complexity to the conversation. And I've had this conversation with Joni Lemercier, who's been uh, very vocal about um, the ecological impact of crypto and also Sterling Crispin, who's kind of on yep. the other end. Um, it's not enough for a platform to go to proof of stake because we did that and it didn't work. Right. This is actually an ecosystem level, a community level issue that needs to be dealt with as a community. So you're using proof of stake just for people who know as opposed to proof of work. So we actually now moved back to proof of work, but we right. launched as proof of stake. So just I'm just going to explain for people yes. a little bit. So these are different kinds of blockchains or like different. So it's like they're the POW or proof of work is the one that sort of like is much more energy intensive, or at least that's the way it's understood. Go ahead. It's much more it's um, it's more energy intensive and it's also the choice of the community, right. basically. And we kind of went against the groove to go somewhere else. Right. And, you know, it didn't work, basically. Got it. And so, you know, in these conversations that I've had with Joni, I've said, this is a very complex problem. Right. That you can't just ask one platform to go over somewhere else and, and have these, the, to be more energy efficient. If that's going to work, everyone would need to move back over. And so what we've done, because... The ecological impact is very important to our team. Mm -hmm. What we've done is many of us on our team are acting as validators for ETH2. So we're nodes who are supporting the development of this much more energy efficient version of Ethereum, which is due to come out in the next year or year and a half. And that's where we're putting our effort is to try and accelerate that as much as possible. The issue here is that this is not a Facebook where you can go to Mark Zuckerberg and say, hey, you need to have this product delivered, you know, in right. Q1, Q2. This is all decentralized all over he the world. He wouldn't do it anyway, though. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> it's that it's, it's decentralized. And when you're trying to move a decentralized network in a direction, it requires a lot of coordination and a lot of buy-in and a lot of support to be able to move effectively. That's fair. This is a long way of saying that yeah. we really care about it. And, you know, we're it's the only we're the only marketplace that has ever been proof of stake in this in this space. And we want to do the best that we can. But we also need to be where the community is and meet, meet the community where they are and participate in these conversations. It just occurred to me there's probably some people listening that are like, what are all these terms? This is so exhausting. I don't know what's going on, but you'll, they'll all catch up. So don't worry, you'll all catch up. So now. I have a kind of a, a crazy question, which is, you know, you're selling memes now, right? As NFTs. <laughs> Partly. Yeah. It's our thing. Now, most memes, though, are based on other people's creative output, you know, whether it's a TV show or it's a photograph or it's something. What are you going to do with copyright issues? I could only imagine this might become an issue. Have you seen anything bubbling up about that? You know, if someone is creating like the NCAT is different because it's sort of it was created as an illustration. But so many incredibly, you know, crying Jordan. I mean, there's so many images that are involve other people's initial image making. Has there been a conversation or are there any restrictions on that? Yeah, so our, in our terms of service that creators agree to when they mint a piece on foundation, they do say that this is an original work of art and that if there are any copyrighted pieces, they have permission to be able to use it. Um, so that is like kind of an agreement that they have going into it. I don't know if that's true of all of the NFT marketplaces, but that's what we do. But I think that there are some issues that are bubbling up around artists seeing their work minted by other people. Yes. 
I think there are some questions also around like, even if they're not like directly pulling a piece exactly, they feel like their work is kind of being ripped off by someone who's making money off of it. Yeah. I think those are the questions where it starts to get a little bit more difficult to moderate where the kind of degree of like one artist's aesthetic or approach stops and another person's begins. And those are the kinds of things that we're going to have to figure out pretty rapidly together as a community. That makes sense. So now what do you want to, I mean, we, we've been talking longer than I thought we would, but I think this is, I really do think this is so fascinating. That's why it's getting so much traction. And frankly, I think we're kind of tired of some of the stuff that's already going on, right? Like, I think it feels a little tired and people want to move on, you know? And uh, one of the things I love about NFTs is it somehow makes me feel for those of us who don't have a lot of space in our lives, this idea of like having these things that don't necessarily have to be in front of you all the time, you know, and that sort of can be stored and, you know, kind of, I mean, I don't want to simplify it too much, but it's like, you know, those of us who had a lot of CDs and now we don't care because they're all on our computer and it kind of feels good, do you know, and you're, it sort of like seems to unclutter your life. And I know that's, you know, I'm not like Mary Kondoing this, but I do think that it does fit better with the way people imagine their lives to be in a way. So what do you think you want to add something that you think people may not know misconceptions that you'd love to correct is there anything any final words you want to impart i want to impart artists to the front i think i think that's i think that's the motto right now is artists to the front and what i'm really loving seeing on foundation is that the artists who are having early success in this space they're coming back they're you know supporting art new and emerging artists they're really contributing to building this kind of beautiful garden honestly is what it feels okay. like this like collaborative garden run by artists and they they have each other's back they're showing up for each other they're advocating for each other and it's really beautiful there are a lot of really there's a really really good energy artist to artist in this space i think what we're kind of losing is some of that like competitiveness and even though we're talking about digital scarcity, I think like <laughs> this idea of like support doesn't need to be scarce and love doesn't need to be scarce. And I think that if that's something that really remains in this space and is part of the values that we can carry forward, then I'm feeling very optimistic about the future. So you keep talking about community, though, is sort of artist focused. And, you know, as much as I love that conversation, we are a bigger ecosystem, right? So what is the ecosystem doing to support critics and curators and do you know what I mean it's like because at the end of the day if it's only about artists you know is it really that different from designers maybe or something like you know it's like the things that make art interesting is partly this bigger ecosystem that's built around it I love the critic making the case for critics <laughs> absolutely I'm going to make the case for critics but yeah, it's not just critics it. but it's also curators. No, no, no. it's, it's also yeah. you know art handlers I mean you know this yeah. is this is not exactly yeah. like there there are yeah. a lot of people whose jobs depend yeah. on this and frankly they all contribute to the yeah. work you know people often disparage it's like oh I can make my work anywhere and it's like good luck if you don't have a, a community mm -hmm. to make the work in, mm -hmm. right? You know, they're all part of what makes the work better. I love that. I love that point that you just made about the art workers too. And, yeah, the, and the art handlers. Important. Because, you know, that's that's something that Sarah Ludi said recently on, on Twitter is that she made she proactively made an agreement with her gallery that she would cut them into sales as long as they split that with the art workers in the gallery, the front of house, the receptionist, um, the people who are who are handling the work. And I think that that's a really powerful move on her part. And I, I know that that's being adopted by others in the space as well, because the way that Sarah puts it, she said, just because digital artists are getting the shine right now doesn't mean that we shouldn't be using that to help elevate other people who could also use a hand up right now. So. Uh, a leg up, hand up. Yeah, we know legs what you mean. and hands. We up. know what you mean. We know what you mean. <laughs> we're, we're reinventing language. We're reinventing so. language and <laughs> technology today. Um, yeah, so I think that you know when I when I say artists to the front, what I mean is that there are, there are shifts happening right now. Right. And 
at least you know when in regards to digital art those those artists have been at the bottom of the totem pole for a pretty long time amen and and i think that a lot of the conversations that i'm seeing happen in the foundation community is about like what is the role of a curator now and and what is the role of a critic and a lot of them honestly do want to carry those roles over into this new space and figure out how they how they fit in here because it's valuable to have a curator write about your work or contextualize it. Ditto an art critic to be able to identify movements or um, trends see, or, or see things that aren't working and that you didn't notice yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that one thing I would really like to impart here is that I think there can be sort of an attitude of like, oh, I missed the boat. I need to get in or I need to <laughs> shove my way through the door. Like what happened? Like I need to catch up. Like everyone just needs to relax and know that Crypto is essentially like it's think of it like its own kind of conceptual artwork that we're all contributing to. And there is room for everyone here. There's there's space for all of us to contribute and to make it what we want it to be. It's not fixed like the art world. It's not fixed like the music world. And so there's there's space to come in, to have a perspective, to make your voice heard and to help define what the space is going to be. That sounds amazing. Well, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about this. And those who are interested in Sarah Ludi's proposal or her contract, uh, Valentina Delicia's article, you can read that on Hyperallergic, and I'll add that to the notes to this episode. Thank you, Lindsay, for coming Thanks, in Rob. and helping uh, you know us understand what's going on. Because I think, you know, I think a lot of people are trying to explain this too quickly, frankly. Because I think, uh, based on my conversations, including my conversation with you. It is evolving. And I think the exciting thing is we don't know what it is fully yet, you know, and it can go in a lot of directions and it probably will go in a lot of directions. Mm -hmm. That's that too. And I think the idea of decentralized can be scary for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But I think we also saw that. I mean, talk about our criticism. I think we saw the exact same thing happen to our criticism where this idea of like the authoritative source, this one source just doesn't exist anymore. There is no one source. You know, New York Times does not sell out a show anymore the way it did maybe 25 years ago or any of these other public. But and sometimes people are just making memes and considering that there are criticisms. Some people are just active on Twitter, myself included. And that's totally (laughs) fine. You know, and it's like we don't need to commodify ourselves if we're just sort of making. And I think one of the things that's exciting about this is there is that potential to imagine something else. And we don't know what it is. So. Thank you for coming in. Always love talking to you about this. And I hope you get to, you know, get a little bit of that adrenaline rush, the dopamine rushes that like continue to sort of uh, percolate around. Thanks so much, Ron. Really pleasure. My name is Hirag Bartanyan, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and stay safe. Also, Get vaccinated.